thank you so much for joining us on today's episode on the Mental Arsenal podcast, your go-to resource for creating an extraordinary life and business from the inside out. So today's guest is an expert on lived adversity. Having faced the challenge of a devastating spinal cord injury following an early morning cycling incident. Mark spent seven weeks in a hospital and a further nine months regaining his mobility, and he will have to pursue physical rehabilitation for the rest of his life in order for him to sustain the gains that he has made and continue to chase marginal improvements. The accident shattered his sense of identity causing him to renegotiate his identity as a professional and as a husband and a father. He's passionate about cooking, traveling, photography, performing arts, and sports. Mark now helps others find possibility from their impossible moments, which is such a beautiful tagline to his book, which we'll mention later during the conversation. So welcome to the call and welcome to the episode, Mark Berridge. Oh, thanks, Chris. That was uh, amazing. You know, it's sometimes with these introductions, I can't help but like smile. You feel really, really proud and wonderful uh, about them. And you also feel mm, a little bit uncomfortable. I mean, just an average guy that didn't make it around a corner on a bike and had to find his way through um, and just amazing support helped me. So, yeah, I think uh, it's an absolute pleasure to be able to speak to you and speak to your listeners and, and share some of that experience because we all go through tough things and and knowing that we're not alone and, and knowing that uh, we can delve into ourselves to find a way to navigate them, such a powerful thing. Yeah, totally. And I love how you mentioned, you know, getting help. I think that's really powerful when it comes to doing things that scare us or, or even recovering from injury or anything that we're struggling with. You know, having people around us and asking for help is so powerful and often overlooked. Um, I think as a society, we've sort of developed into a, a very individualistic mindset. Um, and maybe sometimes we come from a place of fear or ego that reaching out is not even an option that we consider reaching out for help, asking for help. So I yeah, remember from, yeah, that, that was, it was a, a big, big thing aspect. for me, you know, um, and I yeah. don't want to stereotype, but, you know, 50 year old male, um, successful career, you know, a lot of that um, I've, I've received amazing help, mentoring and other things to to get me to to that position. But, you know, you also need to be able to to make decisions and cope. And and sometimes we do focus so much on those elements of just coping and being able to battle through things and, you know, uh, that sense of independence that you know, we have a bit of pride about us when it comes to reaching for help. And I think, you know, in order to be effective at at seeking help, at reaching out for that help, embracing the help that's offered, you know, it's important that we do let ourselves be vulnerable and and appreciate that that um, that you know, lots of people go through things, and we we are going to be stronger if we've got support of others as we go through it. It's also really important that we. Um, you know, aware what what the symptoms are, what what we're going through, so we can communicate it effectively. Because it's harder to ask for help, or I guess as the extension, we're more resistant for asking for help if we can't put our finger on what it is, what's the help we're asking for, and that drives us towards isolation. And isolation actually is you know counterproductive. You know, um, yep, there's times where having just a little bit of lone time and reflective is good. But if you're starting to withdraw more and more and not seek help, then you, you're probably going to get suboptimal outcomes. Yeah, I love that. I think it's like finding that balance between solitude, you know, being alone with yourself, sitting in a room. I think Blaise Pascal is very popular for this quote, like sitting in a room alone, but quiet, you know, by yourself. Mm. Finding that balance between that and then reintegrating your life you know with the people around you so it's like that balance between self-reflection and then also engaging with the people yeah, because you, i guess in either way you can get into loops right if you let yourself just be too alone and you get into negative thought loops and um, that's not going to be yeah. pr very productive uh, likewise i think if you're um, just seeking only help outside and not able to reflect on you know what's driving you how am i going to digest this how am i going to push myself forward you know you do need to take some and responsibility is the wrong word but ownership of your situation and 
And I, I talk about the angels that help me and, you know, love, um, love and kindness, you know, people providing belief for me when I needed it, you know, the ability to reach out for help and, the, and embracing the help that was offered. But the other angel is your own effort. You know, how do I actually apply myself here? And and sometimes, yeah, you do need to digest a little bit the thoughts that and get clear in your own mind, I guess, as best you can, what you know, what action it's going to be, no matter how small or large that that goal or that action towards a goal will be. But lots of little little actions um do build up to create tremendous results. So I guess I in particular in my situation dealing with a spinal cord injury, I really had to sort of break things down to very small actions a lot of the time and just how do I just do the smallest thing and do it again and do it again and do it again and and build off that. And in time, good things will build from something small. And you know, to me that's pretty much life anyway, right? Most of, most of our great things come from a lot of persistent effort and lots of little small things that might spark off each other and build up to create something really wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. I love how you pointed that out, you know, breaking something down into smaller, more actionable steps, because more often than not in the world of entrepreneurship and leadership, that's one of the things that really stop people, especially with leaders who are visionaries. They have this big vision, big idea in their mind. And sometimes that actually stops them from executing because they just see that big picture. But when you chunk that down into actionable steps now it becomes more actionable and you know it kind of like it drives you to make progress towards that bigger vision i think that's such a powerful strategy for making progress towards the things that matter most to us to our big goals and yeah Yeah, i I totally agree chris and and i think that you know, the, for me, big aspirational goals were central to to what I was trying to achieve, right? Uh, you know, when I first heard uh, about the extent of my spinal cord injury and that I had to have an essential operation that evening, you know, you, I definitely wanted to outperform the prognosis and find a way to walk again and to have my mobility and, and have a really, um, I guess, um, very brave aspirational goal that I may well never reach. Um, but you need also to have some steps towards that to make it a reality. Now, I think sometimes, come back to that, the comment you've just made, sometimes in leadership, we create stagnation because we want a perfect plan. We either have no plan at all to get to this aspirational goal or we then want a perfect plan. And I don't think you need a perfect plan. I think that's the way I would urge people to think about it is, yeah, if you're trying to pull off a really big goal, have a bit of a plan. Um, but, you know, things... Just taking a step will change the information at your disposal. It'll change your level of experience. It'll change just yeah. what you can see. It broadens the, like just even taking a step broadens the horizon of possibility for you. So you might actually tweak your goal a little bit. So right. the most important thing is taking you know, some some steps at all. Um, and obviously you're you're trying to identify what are those steps that are most likely going towards towards your aspirational goal when you're taking those little steps. But you don't need a perfect plan. And I I think that. Um, you know, there'd be times in my career where definitely I sort of dwelled too much on trying to get two perfect plans, et cetera. But um, I think most of my career I didn't. Most of my career was, you know, strong aspirations and and let's this the, the the intended pathway or the intended plan, but let's adjust and be flexible as we go. And that certainly helped me in my yeah. recovery is that idea of you know, flexibility. Yeah, I really love that because planning is so important too. Like it's definitely serves a purpose but more often than not if we're not careful about the planning it actually becomes the obstacle to implementing and to execution because like you said now we're obsessing about the perfect plan but the thing to appreciate is we don't we're not um we're not fortune tellers where we'll know exactly how things are going to unfold. Like it helps to have a plan to have at least a rough idea of how you want things to be. But I really love how you shared how, you know, have a big aspirational goal, take action, and then it will unfold as you engage in the process and stay flexible. Because the thing with plans too is that it creates rigidity because now we start to think it has to be this way. It has to be this step. It has to be this strategy and tactic. And then we close ourselves off to the possibilities and other you know, potential solutions to problems. So it's so powerful that you mentioned that. So for entrepreneurs out there who are over planners, <laughs> which is something I personally you know, can relate with. I'm kind of like an over planner. 
we need to at some point snap out of it and like, okay, this is good enough when it comes to planning. Good enough is good enough. And, you know, we should not let our perfectionism bleed into the planning, just like we don't want perfectionism to bleed into anything else in our lives. Because, you know, really planning sometimes over planning is just a symptom of the fear of uncertainty. Like we want certainty. That's what we want. That's because it's comfortable to know where we're heading and what's happening next. But we, there's no way to really know for sure, a hundred percent. So well, we Chris, I'd say that, that most, most traits and perfectionism, obviously one that a number of us suffer from at different stages, you know, have their light and shadow, don't they? So it can be yeah. great. It can drive great things out of you, but it can also, you know, constrain you or make you inflexible. And I think it's that awareness of that. And I'll probably go on and say two things that I guess I've negotiated a lot and um, been involved in a lot of like future economic forecasting or um, other um, sort of price forecasting, et cetera. And I always had that joke that, you know, one of the best things about making a price forecast is when it's wrong tomorrow, you can get up and make a new one and get up and make a new one. And, and I think you need to be aware that, um, you know, that, the process of going through a good forecasting process or a really good strategic planning process is not that you're going to come up with a plan that's right, because in all reality, you won't. But mm. having gone through that process, you're much more aware of the scenarios. You're much more capable of adapting. So again, if you're, you're a bit of a perfectionist, and you want to have a perfect plan. There might be some really good outcomes out of you having invested that time just don't get yourself bound by it. And and I think that was yeah. a very central part of what Chris was saying. Just um, actually use the fact that you've planned well and prepared well to help inform you as the constraints change, as the information at your, your disposable um, matures, as you get you know more progress, as you try things and fail, because you learn a lot of things out of failure, but often we, um, we want to give up or we want to feel just a bit um, knocked in our confidence out of failure, whereas actually maybe failure um, in a lot of situations might help us gain some confidence because we, if we sit down and really look at that and go, well, how do we actually learn from that? What did we, how do we adjust going forward? Then we'll be in a stronger position. Yes, I, I love that. That's so big in entrepreneurship. Like the concept of failure is so big. And I, I really like that we can have a discussion about that because a lot of people you know, that's, there's a fear of failure that stops them from taking action and going for their dreams. And in coaching, you know, in the podcast, the mental arsenal, one of the things that I want to help provide you, the listener, is have this, be able to make distinctions about certain words and concepts, or being able to change your thinking about certain things, a perspective change, a paradigm shift. And that was so powerful, what Mark shared about failure, simply reframing failure as a lesson. You know, when we fail, immediately ask, what can I learn from this? And I love how that's so powerful because it literally transformed the failure into, you know, a step forward. It paves the way forward, but then it requires that change in thinking and a willingness to learn. So thanks for mentioning that, Mark. Yeah, and we and we don't want to um, simplify that too much because you know there'll be emotional elements of you know sense of failure at, at different stages but um, I guess it's you know everything's never as bad as it seems and it's never as good as it seems how do you take away from those situations and just step back for a minute and go what well, how do I take perspectives out of this and and uh, how's this going to you know Yes, I might feel bad about it for a moment, but eventually I'm going to have to move on from that feeling. And when I move on from that feeling, how do I use this as a really powerful um, situation? And I get again, I'd say at the very start, like for, and we'll talk a little bit more about my injury, I'm sure. But the, you know, I had to really, I really wanted to shoot high. So when I started to do that at the start, I really had to go. I'm probably going to fall short. I'm probably going to fail on my goal. Am I going to be okay with that? And I'd have certain friends that would come in and they'd go in hospital and go, you know, I think you're aiming too high. I think you've got to prepare yourself when you plateau. It's going to be really tough. And I'm thinking, well, that's a good problem to have, you know, ultimately, because I've really, really aimed high. And if I fall short of a really high goal um, and then feel it, um, have to work my way through that, that's actually not a really bad problem to have. I'd actually prefer that problem over having set myself too low a goal. Um, and then felt like I haven't pushed myself hard enough or haven't haven't stretched and strived for something that was really nearly impossible. 
um, yeah, so I guess that's the mindset I tried to use on those sort of stretch targets and that striving sort of uh, idea, both in my leadership at work and all my roles um, and in, in the recovery journey. Yeah, I like the thinking that went behind that because you said you you sh- sh- try to shoot for something high, but then you also kind of anticipated that failure is part of the process. And I really like how you mentioned that I'm okay with that. If I fail, I think you gave yourself permission to fail. And I think, you know, our listeners can benefit from that. Just giving yourself permission to try and fail and be okay with failure. There's such beautiful words and it's a, it's a tough thing to do. And it's something mentally I try and do a lot is give yourself permission, like make it a safe zone. What do we talk about in a meeting? How do we make a meeting a safe zone so that people ask the stupid question and there should be no such thing as a stupid question. How do Mm -hmm. we make, life a safe zone so people can speak out about their feelings or their their differences and diversity so that we really do embrace uh, you know, everyone's different perspectives and and therefore become stronger out of those things um but often we're a little bit less careful about giving ourselves permission and giving ourselves yeah our own safe zone and and so i love the way you did that yeah it's beautiful yeah, that's so true. I mean, giving yourself permission. I mean, more often than not, we've been so pre-programmed to ask permission from someone else. Since childhood, we seek permission and approval of our authoritative figures, our parents and our teachers and our relatives and our friends, that we have almost given up our own ability to give ourselves that permission. And so in our own inner work and as we work on ourselves like we need to regain that ability to give ourselves permission to fail and to be vulnerable i think that's so beautiful and for me it's an it's definitely an ongoing challenge like of you know there'll be times when um you know feelings in a stress situation or down about um you know certain elements my mobility or other aspects of life and i've always got to bring it back that thought of you know it's okay give yourself permission to to fall short of this or that or feel that way or um yeah or just let go um we don't mm-hmm. need to be um you know i guess too hard on ourselves because self-kindness is a is an important angel as well yeah I like how you mentioned that, bring back that thought. It speaks to the theme of mental arsenal. It's having these mental tools. And it's all about recognizing. I really love that word, you know, re again and then cognize like the brain. So bring again Mm. to the mind or to remember, you know, those tools, the reframe, the change in thinking. I think that's so powerful. But then, yes. Relive the moment of how that made you feel, that thinking when you you let yourself go and it was so really powerful. Relive the thinking. So, yeah, I love the way you've used, you know, recognizing. I think that's yeah, beautiful. Yeah. I feel like I've said beautiful a lot, listeners. I'll try and uh, bring it. I, I am an author. I do, do have more words than just beautiful. I'll try and work on that as we go. <laughs> no problem at all. Beautiful is a beautiful word. And we can say <laughs> many beautiful, you know, many times as we want. I'm sure they don't mind. (laughs) So earlier too, like you mentioned, when you were about to do the surgery, you kind of like set an intention. I don't know if it was a a conscious or unconscious intention, but you were like, you're going to surpass or rise above the prognosis. I think that's so powerful. And it speaks to the power of intention or desire, like, Mm -hmm. you know, having something in your mind where, you know, this is where I want to go. Because I think for some people, they would have already given up and resign to life like oh no this is the end like it's over but then you you know in that moment we're like okay i'm good i can do this you know it'll be hard but yeah it was more than a moment it was more than a moment so let's just talk through um what happened and we'll we'll cut and we'll build into all of that so uh i used to cycle quite a lot with my mates it was a really good uh headspace for me both in terms of you know physical trying to retain some physical fitness and also just that sense of freedom I had on the bike I loved the feeling of of cycling and um, probably would do uh, three to four rides a week uh, 250 kilometers sort of riding and our typical Sunday ride we'd ride something between 60 and 100 kilometers this particular day we're doing 70 k's halfway through that my bikes hit a, a road defect effectively and the front wheels suddenly started um, going straight through the corner so understeering through the corner lost control 
Um, I was on the bike, regained control, had to make some crash decisions, decided that crashing straight ahead to a grassy park was my best option, but didn't realise that there was a, a drain uh, for stormwater, rainwater, underneath the into the park, and that was like five foot below the ground level. So I knew I was flying over the handlebars. What I didn't realise was I was going to pole drive my left hand, my head, my shoulder into that ditch, which uh, that impact of driving hard into the ground um, crushed two of my vertebrae, so one to 40% of its original height, and a piece about the size of a sugar cube. For those people that can think of a, an old-fashioned um, um, cube of sugar, about one centimetre you know, cubic, uh, about that size went um, shot, shooting into my spinal cord and, and almost all of my spinal cord was um, what they call compressed, but obviously with some um, severing damage as, as that happened. So pain was enormous. And I, I guess where I'm really bringing that story to is, you know, it was a few hours later um, in hospital, we get the results of my scans. And, you know, that was obviously just complete shock to me. I didn't, I knew I was in a lot of pain and um, but I never expected that news about a spinal cord injury um, and potentially not walking again unless we had this emergency surgery that night. And it probably took me about three or four hours of, you know, really feeling lost and starting to generate that intention. And I, again, I love that word. It's a choice. It's intention. Um, at the very start, when they gave me the news, all I wanted to do was try and chip away and get a more certain feeling for what would I be like in the future. And there was just no certainty. And I think... The two really, really important things in those first few hours were probably um, just letting go of searching for certainty that wasn't there. And and so the line that I really remember is they kept saying, well, every spinal cord injury is unique. We can't really tell you. So I turned that into, well, every recovery can be unique. I can make this one what I want it. Uh, you know, I knew that wasn't quite true. Obviously, my imagination wasn't that powerful. I could just make it a miracle. But, you know, I can certainly push it to the edge of best possible if I really intend, you know, have that intention to do that. So letting go of the need for certainty and then developing a really positive intention of, I can't control the outcomes, but I can control the mindset and the attitude I take to this problem, to this situation. Where I am is horrible. I don't want to stay here. So any effort, no matter if it falls short, that moves me in a better direction will make me feel better about myself. I'll probably feel better about myself as I do it. I'll certainly feel better about myself for the rest of my life, however long that is, if I have given it everything from here. And that was, yeah, they were really central thoughts on that first first few hours, that first day, which got me, you know, with an intention to move forward. Right. Yeah, I think it's so powerful that you explained what happened in detail because sometimes we can view things in isolation and overlook the things that you know have not been mentioned and it's nice that we get to appreciate and acknowledge how scary <laughs> that time must have been like you know when I when we talked about intention and everything earlier like it's not about being stoic where you're like you experience something like okay just happy of course we're humans and we will feel shitty about some things that happen yeah. in life and it happens you know it's part of life so it's nice that we get to acknowledge that like like if i think about it if i like when i was visualizing the story like i was like sensing how i would feel if i were in that situation you know sometimes it's so easy to say things like okay just you know set intention or whatever but like when you're there when you're experiencing it firsthand it's much more difficult. It's like some things are more easier said than done. And that's one of those things. So. Well, and Chris, that is so true, even in my situation. So to me, I think that's a really powerful learning is it took me a few hours to, to sort of really get this mindset that I was going to really have a crack at this. And I thought about other people had been amazing, th you know, through whatever difficulty they'd been through and okay, what attitude might that have they've used? I don't know exactly what they did, but if I can imagine the attitude they might have taken, if I try and replicate that, then I'm some chance of moving forward. So I developed all this on the first day. And then I actually had this damn operation, five and a half hours, face down, getting these rods put in my back. So for viewers, basically three quarters of a foot long or 23 centimetres of rods put down my back for a year. Um, and they're screwed to my, my vertebrae to try and hold me, um, give my 
damaged vertebrae a chance to to repair over the next year, but also to try and get this one piece of fractured vertebrae to come back out of the spinal cord as much as possible to give me the best chance of walking in the future. And I go through this damn operation. I get up the next day or wake up, post it, and I realize I can't move at all. I can't move a you know centimeter up the bed, and I'm just so defeated. And yesterday's intention seems like a pipe dream. What was I thinking? You know, I can't do this. This is too hard. I didn't realize, you know, when I signed up yesterday to good intentions, I didn't realize it was quite this hard. So even though you know I gave you that story and you could sort of appreciate how hard it was in the maybe on that first day, I underestimated just how hard it was. And only when I sort of woke up and I guess, you know, for a long period of time in that seven weeks in the hospital in particular, you just realize that as much as you'd like to be superhuman, as much as you'd like it to be not hard, it's just going to be hard. And you just got to find a way to keep picking yourself up. And there's a Japanese saying, I think, you know, fall down seven times, get up eight. I might have the number wrong, but I think that's the right one. And, you know, it, it is like that. Like, and life is like that. You don't need just a hardship. Um, you know, it's it's your ability to go, well, I did have this plan and the plan hasn't quite worked out, but I can dust myself down and find the the good in this failure or the, um, I guess, the hope and the possibility in this shortfall that I've, you know, now feeling against what I wanted to achieve to this point in time or how well I wanted to be going at this point in time in my life. And another saying, I don't think it's actually... Um, got you know concrete roots but you know a few people describe it as you know the best best tree is the one that you planted 20 years ago or 30 years ago whichever version of the the saying you've heard or the one you plant today you know you can sit there and dwell about the you know i wish i had that shady tree that i thought about building 20 or planting 20 years ago and and lazing underneath it well if you haven't done it you haven't done it so the best time to do it now is today and i think you know when you're going through something tough when you're trying to um you know change yourself from an you know leadership improvement perspective or just get the most out of your friends your family life you know the moment today the moment today is the moment you've got now take it moment yeah i also really love and wanted to circle back on what you mentioned on that first day because you did mention about letting go and so that brings up the concept of letting go and the art of surrender and allowing and acceptance i think that is so good and you that even relates to the concept of locus of control you know like there are things outside of our control and if it's outside our control we should let it go because there's really nothing we can do about it and we can focus on what we can do and hone in on you know improving our attitudinal muscles and how we think about things and you know, who we're being in that moment, I think that's so powerful. I think for a lot of people, the concept of acceptance and surrender and letting go is, is, is a bit hard to grasp because there's a sense of passivity as if like I'm resigned to life. I'm just like, let whatever happen, happen. Mm. It's actually one of the most proactive things that we can do because from a place of letting go and acceptance, you know, we are actually more empowered and we are more present because we're not being neurotic about what's going to happen later, or what she's thinking, you know, things like that. So we're present. So I just wanted to mention that because that's such a powerful concept. So I talk about sort of good enough acceptance, you know, so I think perhaps in my career, um, you know, I saw the um, the grief cycle or the change curve when you denial bargaining, um, yeah. you know, onto acceptance. Uh, Kubler-Ross uh, originally you know, designed in so many formats. And I said, to me, I think I probably just went for a good enough acceptance because you can't, you're going to fall back and forth between those cycles. And if you're trying to sit there and look for a perfect acceptance of a situation, again, it's a good way to just freeze and and not move forward. So how do I go? Well, actually, by letting go of you know perfect acceptance of my situation, I get a you know a broadly that I, it is where it is. I've just got to put, take up you know deal with that, and then then see where the possibilities come from this. And you start to it, it really comes down to that first comment I made around the certainty. You know, drilling for certainty that wasn't there. That was narrowing my gaze. That was causing me to to slow down how I'd accept my predicament. But once I let go of that and just embraced uncertainty, then I could reach acceptance quicker. I could liberate possibility beyond what I imagine just by letting go of those concepts, I guess, that otherwise you might have, you know, 
pursued a more perfect acceptance. Yeah. Yeah. I think the mind can get neurotic sometimes. And that is that part of us, that one certainty, because on a primal level, the mind seeks to protect us. And so if anything is uncertain, if anything is unknown, if we're venturing into a new domain, the mind feels threatened and the mind feels like, oh no, I might get hurt or I might die. So that's yep. it. Sometimes it kind of like blows things out of proportion and it's not accurate. And we realize when we venture into that new domain, oh, I'm actually fine. I'm not actually going to die. <laughs> so we need to kind of like resolve within ourselves. And that's why I think in coaching, it's so important to be able to hone the ability to self-soothe and create a sense of personal safety and just be able to tell yourself that you're okay, you're safe. And that kind of like also supports you giving permission to try things and to go outside your comfort zone, if not play around the edge of your comfort zone. So I think that's so powerful. Yeah. And, and time is a bit of a healer in that as, as well. So you, obviously what, whatever you can do um, mentally to get yourself to let go now. Um, but if you just need to just give yourself a little bit of space and time, it sort of naturally happens anyway, right? We, both, we all know so many situations in our life where the, the problem that felt like a mountain today um, you know, when yeah. we look back, wasn't much of a mountain after all, or we feel so much uh, stronger in ourselves for having, you know, navigated it if it's still, if we were still looking back at, at it being a mountain. But I think most of the time when we look back at, we realize that the cliff, cliff face we saw in front of us wasn't quite as bad a cliff face as we thought. Hmm. Yeah. Hindsight is always twenty twenty, they say. So, you know, looking, we connect the dots looking back and we realize like, oh, things start to make sense. And and we realize we've overcome so much. I think because of the mind's negativity bias, we tend to focus on the negatives and the things that we're not able to do and the failures and the things that we're not able to achieve. But we overlooked the things that we achieved and our wins and where we succeeded and where we did things right. So it does also take you know, conscious effort and discipline, mental discipline, to be able to celebrate those wins and really bask in the victories, even the little victories, because that helps boost our self-efficacy and our self-belief and our self-esteem. And that helps us take us, helps us uh, take on more difficult, bigger challenges, which really is what we're meant to do. It's like the continuous expansion of the self. And you know, we experience challenges to prepare us for the next bigger challenge. So yep. Yep. So, and, you know, it's like developing this little well of resilience by, um, you know, celebrating all those things we've been through in the past or having other people remind us too, you know, so, you know, showing others what you appreciate what they do, congratulating them on their, in, their improvements or what you may have seen them tackling, even if, even if you're um, congratulating them on being really brave and falling short of something, you know. How, all of that's really, really powerful at building pe people's resilience and their ability to tackle next things. And it, I guess ultimately that's really what I was trying to achieve in the book, you know, to share a bit of what I went through. And the book's called A Fraction Stronger because it is a case that we are actually all a fraction stronger than we realize. Um, and how do we sort of tap into that more and celebrate it? And just by being more aware of that, celebrating it in yourself and in others, then collectively we're all a fraction stronger and that's, you know, ultimately that helps us achieve even more fantastic things than we're doing already. Um, and that's more celebrations, more great feelings, more fractions of strength. And uh, so it's, uh, I guess, builds off itself and that's, yeah, again, pretty amazing. And ultimately, as you say, that's what life's about, right? How do we build all these experiences and um, make make the best life we can out of whatever predicament we're in because everyone's in, um, you know, varying, um, I guess, stages of their life, stages of their wealth, their health. Um, we, you know, we go through different things. All of us, sometimes we're seeing what other people are going through. Sometimes we don't know what they're going through. Um, but everyone's going through stuff. Um, and ultimately, our ability to get through all that stuff and enjoy all this fantastic nature and beauty on this planet and the beauty of human nature um, yeah. is a very special thing. And And yeah. How do we just 
sharing that more. Celebrate it. Yeah. I like that. And to me, I, I connect that with the concept of like kindness. You know, when you're congratulating someone, when you're affirming their awesomeness, their greatness, I think that's one of the most generous things we can do as human beings. Um, you know, in the whether that's in the context of parenting and with your friends in a coaching relationship or um, with anyone, with a romantic partner, just affirming the good in them. I think that is so powerful and definitely the world can use so much more kindness from all of and, us. And when we're affirming the good in others, you know, it makes it actually, it's a two-way street. It makes us feel better as well. It's yeah. actually a lovely feeling for both of us. But also most of us are pretty uncomfortable taking compliments. And, you know, again, I, I still, you know, still feel a bit like that when, you know, I have the intros, right? I'm just an average bloke who didn't make it around in a corner on a bike and is now trying to help other people because people help me. But the more we get positive affirmation from other people, the more comfortable we actually get with hearing it. And mm. then the more deeply we take it on board, which makes it more easily for us to tap into it when we need it and we yeah. effectively collectively build strength again yeah i think from my own experience i get people who do struggle with receiving compliments usually the tendency or the attitude is when someone gives a compliment and it's a genuine compliment and it or and it doesn't even matter if it's genuine or not usually the attitude is to deflect it or to downplay <laughs> no no i'm not that amazing but that is a really important attitude that we need to have around compliments. We need to be able to learn to receive. Um, yeah, and be okay with it. You know, for me too, like I struggled with receiving compliments. I think that's the culture here. Like, don't be too proud of yourself when you're, when you're receive, receiving compliments, you're being egoic or self-centered. I think we need to shift that attitude and really own it, you know, and just receive it. So what I do now is when people give like compliments i just say thanks you know i don't have yep. to explain or like whatever i just have to say thanks thank you because you might feel when you're deflecting it and we've all done it i'm sure i know i have but when we're deflecting it you might feel like you know that's a bit of a humility or um mm -hmm. downplaying it anyone would have done it but you're actually um not only taking away the power of that in your side yourself but the person that was giving that genuine compliment doesn't yeah. get the same payback out of giving the the compliment if it's mm. deflected than if it's received warmly so you know again, there's a chapter in the book that i talk about reaching out and reaching in and and really the idea being that the help is um and kindness is it's most powerful when it's warmly embraced and uh, and you know because it does spark off it does spark off each other and and become something even more special if you, if you can manage it and i didn't always but but i do know from the times i did it was more powerful I love that. You know, even the, in the slogan of the show, it's creating an extraordinary life and business from the inside out. So I love how that intersects, reaching out and reaching in, the concept or duality of in and out mm. and the concept of kindness. I think that's something we overlook too in the world of business and entrepreneurship is like it's all about, you know, productivity and income and profits that we forget about these really important values that actually make the world go around, you know, love and kindness and compassion and empathy. No, we're all human at the end of the day and we respond to those, you know, those yeah. things that are human uh, traits. And, you know, yeah, when you're running a business, yeah, it's about, there's about bottom line elements to that business. Sure, you, you know, you're not a charity at the end of the day, but your best results are probably going to come from a engaged and, um and they, you know, a proper team, right? And the only way you're going to get really great team work, I think, is really caring about people and being in, them seeing how engaged you are and invested you are in them, uh, yeah. them as people as well as the outcomes. Because, and you know, we sometimes as businesses we do we're focusing on those outcomes, those outcomes, those outcomes. But we tell everyone to, you know, when you're doing something, don't focus on the outcome, get, focus on the process, get the process right. But sometimes as a business, we lose sight of that. And I think a big element of that process is how do we treat people and, and make sure people are set up and supported to, to have the, um, you know, the confidence and independence um, support systems 
to be their best selves and and you know sometimes have those creative moments and you know, I remember one of the businesses I supported in New Zealand was amazing down the bottom, very bottom of New Zealand an aluminium smelter it was just amazing at business improvement best of anyone and it was just a learned skill amongst the people it was something they were really proud of being good at that but they were also always given the time so one of the, the leaders just said well we make sure people have got the time and space to keep improving because if we don't give them that how do we how are we going to measure them on delivering on it and i thought that was a really powerful reflection because so often we um, as leaders we're hungry for the outcome of that business improvement but we're not very generous with giving the resources to help that outcome yeah man that's so good giving people the time and space to improve I think that's graceful and generous because a lot of businesses, not to generalize, are, are very cutthroat in those areas. So, you know, so it's nice to be able to give the people you work with some grace and give them the resources to, you know, actualize whatever best they can give in the moment. Yeah. And, you know, obviously you want to support them and make sure that they're able to do that um and that's the that's always the tension right because everyone each individual is a bit different and each they need a, a slightly different amount of space and as a leader you've got to be able to assess that and work out you know when are they actually struggling but they don't want to tell me i've given them the space but they're struggling i don't want don't want to tell me or um and i need to get a little bit closer to that situation and how do i read that um or other situations where no they actually just need more time and space because that's how they operate you know, be patient, give it to them and uh, better things will flow from that because otherwise, uh, you know, they'll start to shut down again if I, you know, look like I'm micromanaging or stepping in too soon or or pressing at a point in time where that's not of their value. So, and I guess at the end of the day, it's partially knowing people, but it's having that really, you know, good communication where you're starting to try and ask the questions that uncover that and uh, and, and work it out and, and treat each people um, you know, a little bit differently. Mm. I like that. Asking questions, so powerful, you know, because sometimes we like to make assumptions and sometimes we create narratives around different situations and events and we jump to conclusions that we don't give the other person the grace to at least clarify what's going on. So asking questions, so powerful. Yeah, and... You know, I guess you know most of my career has been spent as a negotiator, and you know that ability to ask the you know ask good questions, keep asking questions, um, listen and and build off that to and be curious. And one of my negotiation mentors always talks about you know be like a little kitten with a uh, ball of wool. How do I just keep teasing out the little bits of wool and uh, uh, unbundling it and really understanding what's in that ball of wool and having fun with it? You know, not not being too um, to strategic, I guess, to difficult, yeah, or coming across too strategic or too difficult in the way you're asking that curiosity, but genuinely, you know, being interested and finding out what's 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 in there and and where's the opportunity and and uh, and how then can we both benefit? And I think that's really a key thing is when you're asking questions of someone, or um, or of a situation or in, in a negotiation is that you are asking those questions in order to try and come up with advantage for both of you yeah. rather than advantage for you alone. Because if you prove to you, if you show colours that show that you ask these questions only for your own benefit and not for the interest of the other party, what they're going to do in the future, they're going to shut down. It's going to be more difficult to, to um, right. get information out of them and uh, feelings out of them, perspectives out of them if, you've, if they've seen that that hasn't, uh, been a for mutual benefit for a better overall objective right yeah like the outcome the desired outcome for successful and effective negotiation is a win-win like no one has to feel like they won and i lost or you know then there might be some healthy compromises but the overall feeling that people should get coming out from the negotiation is like you know it was advantageous for both parties and I guess the problem is that so often people might use win-win where it's just only been a compromise and sort of it, no one's got <laughs> quite 
quite all what they wanted, but they haven't given up, uh, given away everything they didn't want to give away. And so they still see that as a bit of a win-win. And whereas we would always coach that there are generally ways to trade things that are of differential value. So you actually get um, everything you want and the other side gets everything they want um, if you can explore the, those areas of differentiated value. And uh, I know that sounds might sound a little bit too idealistic, but there are definitely ways by really understanding the objectives of the other side clearly um, and not, not jumping to assumptions as to what those objectives are that you might become to be able to uncover even more powerful outcomes than you expected going into that negotiation. Yeah, I love that. And how you mentioned earlier, just being able to communicate clearly. And of course, a big part of communication is listening. And I think with negotiation or relationships in general, just that ability to listen and make people feel seen and heard, and you come from a place where you really get them on a deep level, that facilitates, you know, effective communication and negotiation. So, Mark, as we arrive uh, the end of the episode, I want to give a moment to at least talk about your book. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about A Fraction Stronger, Finding Belief and Possibility in Life's Impossible Moments? I, we know that your story inspired this, but can you tell us a little bit more about what readers can expect? And maybe your your favorite part or section in the book. Oh, God. Um Look, the, the book, A Fraction Stronger, um, came out of, I guess, feedback uh, a year after my accident when I first started uh, showing people a little bit about you know, publicly what had happened to me. Because at the very start, you know, my immediate friends and family knew, but my more broad work network, uh, none of them really knew what happened to me because I didn't really have the energy to deal with it. So I started to talk a little bit more and and that eventually built momentum into, yeah, there's something worth sharing here to try and help other people when they're going through hardships. So at a very high level, the book was, purpose was built out of, I received so much good help, so much perspective from others when I needed it. Uh, can I give that you know, gift back to others? And, and the book really um, you know, has, its, has its basis out of trying to give back. And as we talked about earlier, that idea that, you know, we are all a little bit fraction stronger than we realised if we just sort of, you know, reflect on those those things. The book's sort of structured into, with each of the chapters having some reflective questions at the end of the chapter so people can sit down and go, oh, yeah, I sort of, you know, that's amazing things I did that, you know, I was much more brave than I realised. So you know, one of the comments I have about bravery is that bravery is all it needs to be to get you in, you know, through this moment to get to the next. It doesn't need to be something grand. It doesn't need to be, um, you know, whoever it was that you remember you know, um, meaning to continue to play their game of football with a broken leg or whatever they did, then they only realised later on, you go, geez, that was brave. Well, they were just trying to keep playing football. They weren't trying to be brave, right? So, um, yeah, so these chapters, and the chapters are broken into three main sections within the book. So the book is um, broken into uh, lanterns, angels, and demons. And the idea behind those three sections, they're the things that really, I guess, helped me in my journey. So lanterns are all of those things that help us illuminate hope. And when we're going through hardship or when we're trying to instigate more difficult change for ourselves, we've just got a really big aspirational idea, you know, that's all centers around hope. And how do we how do we brighten that hope and help ourselves keep going towards that hope? Uh, angels are the are the, the people and things that shepherd us towards that hope direction. So, you know, love, belief, your own effort, the ability to reach out and in for help. And then demons being the things that hit you in the head and in the tummy that cause, you know, uh, fright, flight, um, freezing, fight. And how do you then, you know, use them in a more positive way um, to, to try and move yourself forward? So reframing them, you know, like the example I would sort of give is, you know, today I still can't keep up with my family when we're going a, a walk together. Um, so I can't help it. I still got that thought go through my mind every time I hate falling behind. But I've got the positive reframe that I always attach to it, which is at least I'm walking with the hope of improvement. And 
So if I can change my perspective about my position and not um, hate the fact that I'm more, you know, falling behind or that I, you know, that I'm just sweating and breathing so hard and working so hard physically just to keep up as well as I'm keeping up, which is not very well, um, to go, well, you know, at least pushing myself is helping me move forward and, and uh, continue to improve. And that's a good problem to have that I've got this scope for improvement if I keep working on it. Um, how do I change that perspective on things? So, yeah, that you know, I guess the demon sort of covers off a few different ideas. You know, despair, guilt, um, fear, and finding worth. Because obviously, uh, for me, um, I was just saying, obviously, I mean, I don't know. Everyone will have their own journey, but for me, when you, you know, I was associated with being, um, you know, I guess a physically reasonably fit uh, guy. I'd played a lot of field hockey all my life, and you know other sports and like doing things with my kids um and suddenly that's taken away from you you, you sort of you know how do i um, find things that i can do rather than focus on the things i can't do and that sort of idea behind you know finding worth so yeah they're the, that's the broad structure of the book but i guess something that will really help someone if they're going through hardship but i think it's got tremendous value just for someone trying to instigate change and i've certainly got you know feedback from you know both those sort of readership circles yeah, thank you so much. That's such a wonderful way to describe what the reader can get from the book. And I like how you mentioned, you know, a change in perspective and how you think about things. I think that's so powerful because sometimes it really just takes a change in thinking to create transformation. So that's so powerful. And I'm, I'm sure anyone who reads the book will be so inspired by your story and the adversity that you went through and overcome and still continue to overcome is so inspiring. So thank you so, so much for sharing that. And uh, so where can um where can our listeners get a copy of your book? Chris, I know we're, we're wrapping it up. So very, very quickly on that change of perspective thing, one of the... Um, one of my friends did something really powerful at one point in time where I'd just done a first first speech and mm-hmm. I was busy being a perfectionist and critiquing myself on, you know, what I could have done better. And he just said to me, how would you review the performance if it was me? Mm-hmm. So he made me step out of myself and stop critiquing myself yeah. and critique the speech as if I was critiquing him. And it yeah. was a very, very powerful change in perspective. So there are a lot of different techniques you can use to change perspective that you may not have thought about, um, that maybe people have done to you in the past, you just didn't realize they did it. So the book, uh, it's available on, um, I guess, most online retailers, Booktopia in Australia, Amazon. There's now an audio book. You can reach out to me at markberridge.com.au. I'm sure there'll be links in the socials, et cetera. Uh, some bookstores around, uh, certainly around Australia, it's widespread in bookstores and elsewhere around the world. Um, but but mainly, I guess, you know, for um, Chris's listeners, mainly it's an online uh, opportunity. As I said, there's an ebook, there's an audio book, uh, Do Sing, which is a bit of a weird thing to do, but it's only two, it's only a minute, probably in six hours. So um, sorry about, sorry about my bad singing, but there's a special reason why I sing a line. Um, that a song that was important to me at a certain point in time. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Mark. And to our listeners, remember to follow your heart, to believe in yourself, and to take action. And maybe uh, to add a layer to that, to ask for help when needed. Thank you so much, Mark, for joining us on the Mental Arsenal podcast. And we'll see y'all on the next episode. Hey, go-getter. Want to know a quick way to boost your motivation and productivity? Three words. Crystal clear goals. I have a guide for it. It's called Goalbook, your guide to crystal clear goals. Head on over to chrisacebu.com slash goalbook and grab your free copy now.